The Interchange Podcast is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com gtm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston, joined by my co-host, Shale Khan, who is in Berkeley. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. We've got a double feature this week. First up, a leaked copy of a highly anticipated DOE grid reliability report shows that renewables are not destabilizing the power sector. How awkward a position is the agency in now? What might change in the final copy? And was the leak ethical? Then, a conversation with Hervé Toati, Managing Director of the Rocky Mountain Institute, about the latest with big corporations buying renewable energy. The federal government may have walked away from its climate commitments, but corporations are doing more than ever and will tackle the market-making trends. On to the first topic. The moment we were all waiting for happened accidentally last week. Someone within the DOE leaked a draft copy of a report being written for Energy Secretary Rick Perry. If you remember... Back in April, Perry requested this analysis in a 60-day time frame, and in his letter to his chief of staff, he alluded to environmental regulations and renewable energy subsidies as potential threats to a reliable grid. So now the unfinished, leaked version, presumably written by DOE staffers and not political appointees, concludes that natural gas, aging fleets, flattening demand, and wholesale market prices are the cause of baseload retirements. And no... So far, wind and solar are not threatening the grid. So the question is, how will the final version change? Shale, you tweeted out your thanks to the nameless, thankless DOE employees, in your words, who wrote the study, calling it quite good on Twitter. What did you like about it? Well, I think it's a a really good, well-researched, well-founded description of at least part of the answer to the question that Secretary Perry was asking in the original memo that he sent out asking for the study to be completed. So he was sort of asking, you know, if you read between the lines, he's asking a couple of things in the original memo. He was asking, one, um, you know, is there a crisis of baseload power, especially nuclear and coal in the U.S.? Are we seeing a ton of early retirements? Uh, two, was that cause the cause of that crisis to the extent that it's happening? Uh, you know, just market distortions and renewable subsidies and things like that. And then three, is there some threat to reliability on the grid as a result of the changing power mix and what he called decreasing fuel diversity? So I think that what we've got here, what was leaked, right? Just to step back is like a 142 page very, very, very much draft version of the report. I mean, that's important to note. This is not a complete version. Throughout, there are, you know, things pasted in there that are clearly taken from other places. If it were in the final version and not cited, it would have been plagiarism, but this is a draft. There are notes, internal notes, whoever is writing it left notes in there to themselves saying this will be changed later. This is going to be added. There are sections that have headers with no content. There are entire chapters that are empty. So this is, you know, this is a work in progress that got leaked. And it's important to note that so that we don't take too much of a 
you know, we, we don't assume this to be exactly the findings that would have come out of this study prior to any political influence. I'm sure it would have changed anyway. But right. the, with that said- The tone said, was interesting. Yeah, the tone, the tone was uh, clear. You know, it's, it's very like, it, it takes a strong stance sort of against the, what you would have assumed uh, Secretary Perry would have wanted to answer. And we should talk about what that means and sort of how this is all playing out from a political standpoint. But basically what it does is it has a lot of evidence and it lays out the case for, um, first, there have been a lot of retirements of baseload plants. I think everybody agrees 56, that. 56,000 um, megawatts of coal since 2001 have been retired or announced for retirement. A lot right. of and, coal. And, and nuclear retirements too. More and more um, nuclear retirements recently. Exactly. 5% of the existing nuclear fleet in the U.S. has already retired, and then there's a bunch more that's scheduled to retire. So, you know, it, I think, agrees with the premise. Um, but then it outlines a pretty clear case that the primary causes of those retirements have been the things that you mentioned originally. One, the rise of cheap natural gas, which has driven power prices down, which has made it harder to make money as a as a merchant generator, especially if you're not flexible, um, as most of these baseload plants have not been historically. Second, lower than expected demand. So it's not just that demand is flattening. Um, it's that the predictions when these plants were financed and built were that demand would continue to grow. And then the fact that instead it has gone flat in most cases has meant that uh, the economics didn't pan out. And I'll just, as an aside, let me just give you an example of a project that is facing that right now. And it's actually a gas project. So this is not unique to coal or nuclear, but there's this uh, gas project in Texas, the Panda project. Um, in te It's called Temple Power One. Panda Power Funds is the one who's constructing it. And the it's a natural gas project is like oh, 758 megawatts. Um, and it's it began commercial operation in 2014 after being designed in, in the middle of the last decade. And it filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. And in filing for bankruptcy, it cited, quote unquote, false and misleading market data provided by ERCOT um, as the principal cause of its bankruptcy. And basically, when you dig into that, what they're saying is that ERCOT was predicting it would have lower reserve margins than it actually ended up having because ERCOT was uh, mostly was predicting increasing demand that didn't happen. And so Panda was saying, you know, uh, this is what caused this project to go bankrupt. So lower than expected demand is the second major cause of these retirements. And then it also addresses the question of renewables um, just generally, are they causing these bankruptcies? And second, are renewable subsidies the factors that are driving that? And makes a pretty strong case to the contrary of that. Um, it uses examples like if you look at the Southeast, you know, they said, well, look, we've had lots of retirements of baseload plants in the Southeast and virtually zero renewables, at least historically, in the Southeast as well. So it's hard to draw a really clear line there. And finally, you know, on the subsidy question, it also takes a really wide view of subsidies, which is probably appropriate. And I just want to read one quote, which is, Subsidies in the form of federal R&D and federal tax credits encouraged the development and spread of wind and solar generation, just as in earlier decades, federal R&D and subsidies enabled the development and commercialization of civilian nuclear energy and the natural gas combustion turbine and the realization of hydraulic fracking techniques for oil and gas development. Clearly, all of those subsidies 
contributed to the current baseload problem, but no one can be blamed for it. In one sense, this report is actually pretty boring because my guess is that most people out there who listen to this show, whether they're you know a fan of renewables or not, understand the forces changing the grid today. And they're exactly what was outlined in this DOE report. And I think they do an excellent job of laying out all the market forces and and subsidy forces, which are wide ranging, that are influencing the aging fleet of baseload power plants in this country. But in another sense, it's actually pretty exciting because, you know, the expectations were that this would be a report coming from a handful of political appointees in Rick Perry's um, DOE, that they would be railing on renewable energy subsidies, that they would try uh, either subtly or explicitly to place blame on renewables. And we still may get that in the final report. But this completely shattered expectations, I think, which makes it a very exciting report to read through. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, I do want to say, I think the final question in the memo, which is, um, it does this threaten reliability? That is not actually well answered within this draft study. First of all, a lot of those sections are still blank, so they were still to be written. It does have a bit uh, of data, as you said, on the sort of existing question, which is, have we seen reliability threatened thus far because of the proliferation of intermittent generation? And the answer to that is a very clear no. Um, but I think there is a legitimate question to ask if you look forward, saying, you know, what would threaten reliability? Is decreasing fuel diversity a concern? And there are cases that you can point to now where we didn't actually end up having a reliability crisis, but you can imagine how there would have been one. So our colleagues at Wood McKenzie pointed out one to me, which was the polar vortex um, a couple of years ago. So what happened during the polar vortex, if you recall, this was, you know, a, a sort of a record cold snap um, in the Northeast that went across the Midwest. And basically what happened was uh, it got so cold, you had a bunch of generator outages, largely natural gas. So there was a natural gas supply shortage at that time. When the polar vortex was happening, wind, of which there's a fair bit in PJM, which is um, what I'm looking at right now, their wind performed pretty well um, because it tends to be when you have a cold snap like this, a cold front comes through and it gets really windy. So wind performed very well, but... After the fact, then, um, a couple days after the original cold snap, it stays very cold. So load stays pretty high, but the wind dies off. That front um, has passed through. And what ended up happening during the polar vortex was that a bunch of coal and oil fire generation units, which have now retired, um, stepped in to fill that gap. They provided about nine gigawatts of power on January 7th, which was the day that I'm talking about here. So had they not been there, then there's this question, well, your natural gas um, isn't there because you're in a, you've got a supply shortage and there are generator outages, your wind isn't producing. So what would you rely upon? And that's the kind of question that I think you can then answer in multiple ways. You can, you know, one view of that would say, well, that's what exactly why you need that coal generation. You need fuel diversity. The other side of that would say, well, that's exactly why you need to, you know, deploy energy storage and demand response and all the other solutions for flexibility. And I feel like that's a good conversation to be having. That part of it was not in the paper just yet. Right. Which is why this could be a beneficial report if you're actually answering those questions. And the big fear was 
you know, that this would be a political report and wouldn't actually dig into those real world problems because, you know, whatever your view on how much renewable energy we need in the system, those are very important questions to be considering. So what do you make of the politics of this? I mean, it seems like it came from a DOE staffer. Some are speculating from someone within a DOE lab. Um, what, what kind of position does this put the DOE in, in your opinion? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I've been trying to figure out exactly what how this came to be, right? Because this is a deeply researched 140-some page paper, even in its draft form. Um, clearly, a, it's not one person. A bunch of people put work into this. Uh, and you know, I think it's also obvious when you read through it that there was never a chance that it was going to see the light of day in its current form if it was just handed internally to the Secretary of Energy to release. Um, so what does that mean? It means that somebody within the labs or within DOE was writing this either knowing that they were going to leak it um, because they wanted to get it out there sort of to preempt what the final review study was going to be, or maybe they never intended to leak it, but still sort of said, well, I, you know, I, I'm going to take your memo at its word and I'm going to answer it in the way that I think is right, knowing that, you know, there's probably going to be a debate internally. So I don't know how it came to be, but politically, it, I think it puts uh, the DOE in kind of a tricky position now. Because since it's been leaked, now we have this draft version of it. So if they release a final version that finds, you know, all opposite conclusions or deletes a lot of the analysis in here um, and ends up looking like we were sort of anticipating that the final study would look, then everybody, you know, you guys the on the editorial team at GTM, along with all of your colleagues in the media everywhere, are going to be looking at all the distinctions between the draft version and the final version and asking questions about what changed and why the analysis wasn't right in the draft version. So it does sort of put the secretary in kind of a tricky spot. I don't know how exactly he's going to get out of it apart from maybe just never releasing the study. What do you think? I think they'll release the study. Um, secretary Perry said earlier this week that he was anticipating the study just like everybody else. So even after the leak of the draft, he publicly said that he was waiting the waiting on the conclusions. I that's you know the intention is to put him in a tricky spot. This is clearly someone who's done the deep research, who knew that things would get changed, and wanted the world to know what those changes would be. Um, I, I don't know exactly what he does. I think they'll release the study. Um, but what what will they release? I mean, is it going to be a complete like if if you let's just assume that the intent? I mean, it's possible. You know, you can if you want to give a charitable. Um, explanation for the original memo. It's possible that the original memo was, you know, an open exploration and that if this is largely the answer that it finds, then they'd be happy to release it. I'm skeptical of that, obviously. And I think that um, there was intent behind the original memo. It wasn't an open exploration. So if you believe that, you know, the point of the getting the study done in the first place was to reach a certain set of conclusions and what's in this draft are very much not those conclusions, then what do they do? Do they release a study that still comes to their original conclusions um, that looks nothing like this? Or do they try to adapt this? I mean, it's worth noting that the draft that was leaked was from June 26th. So they've already had, you know, three or four weeks to do something yeah. to it. I mean, I, I don't know the answer. It's it's almost impossible to know what they, they're going to do. The most charitable interpretation would be that maybe – this is a report that Perry takes into consideration, and it's not as political as we thought. 
I mean, that's the most charitable way to look at this. Maybe we're not going to get the political report that everyone assumed we would. Sure. I mean, that's possible. Um, but, you know, I think what, so what happened was the study leaked, but then the press coverage of it focused on just the sort of findings. So it all took this paragraph, um, all the original articles took this paragraph explaining that the the sources of baseloads woes are these are, are, you know, natural gas and lower than expected electricity demand and less so renewables. And then the DOE spokespeople were asked about that statement and said that that statement is no longer in the report. And so if that were the only statement that sort of went counter to what seemed like the original intent of the of Secretary Perry's memo, then I could see how they could adapt this uh, draft study into something they'd be happy with. But now having read through the full 142 pages, I think they have a really hard time taking much of anything from here and feeling comfortable with it, given what it seems like their priors were. So they maybe they're starting from scratch, or maybe you're right, and and they're going to release something that's a adapted version of this that you know, also raises reliability questions moving forward and sparks a good conversation. I guess the bigger question here that you were asking when when we talked about this earlier was the, the ethics of this leak. Was it was it the right thing to do? Now, I'm a journalist. I like leaks. I like to be able to compare an earlier draft to a new draft. This, to me, completes the picture and helps me understand the process within the DOE. You have uh, a different take on it. Yeah, well, actually, you know, so I I read the study, the full draft um, that was leaked. And then, I, t- like you said earlier, I tweeted out sort of a thanks to whoever wrote it because I think it is, it's well-researched and there's a lot in here. And they probably knew that it was never going to see the light of day unless they intended to leak it. Um, and then I got a, a ton of people responding saying, agreed, thanks so much to these people. And then a few people responding saying, you know, I agree with the findings of this largely, but I don't think it was ethical to actually leak it. Um, and so this, I don't want to like get into this broader conversation about leaks that we have in this current administration, but I will say as somebody who like oversees a team of people who prepare big reports, the last thing that I would want is somebody leaking draft versions of reports that we were working on. I mean, if you look through this, there's a lot of stuff in here that even if this had been in the Obama administration, you know, and you had had a DOE that was very friendly to the conclusions in here, um, you still wouldn't have wanted this stuff to to see the light of day. There were notes, internal notes in there. There's stuff saying, you know, a note to myself. There's there's a note on on page 93 that says, quote, will rene- removing renewable subsidies and RPS make renewable generation go away? Uh, ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. No. And that, like, that's not founded yet. That's a note to themselves saying, okay, we need to make this case and we need to find, you know, we, we, we want to use evidence to do that. And like, you don't want that kind of stuff to get out there because the point is that it's in draft form. So was it really ethical for whoever was working on this inside DOE to release it in this current form with all these sort of open bits and internal notes? I'm not so sure. I mean, I I like full disclosure. I am always uh, biased toward more information out in the public sphere. So I, I like the fact that I can see this process I like the fact that I can see the differentiation between what a lab research or DOE staffer concluded versus what a political appointee concluded. Um, you know, whatever the conclusion and whatever the administration 
I would like to see more of this. It'd be it'd be nice actually to see how many of these government reports that my money, your money, and our listeners' money are supporting are are actually developed. That's one of the criticisms of EIA, for example. Um, you know, there are a lot of political inputs. Members of Congress might ask EIA for specific conclusion, a predetermined conclusion about, say, renewable energy subsidies or energy subsidies generally. And, uh, you know, EIA is forced to, to, to do garbage in, garbage out modeling and basically construct a piece of analysis based on what a member of Congress is asking them for. This is a somewhat similar process. And so as a taxpayer and, of course, as a journalist, I feel like it's our right to know how each step in the process works. I don't know. I mean, again, this is, you know, just imagine a a totally different situation or imagine it on the other side of the equation. Let's just say, uh, okay, here's an imaginary example. Let's just say during the Obama administration that Secretary Moniz had requested that the DOE do a study showing high penetration renewable energy futures, you know, showing an 80, like the NREL uh, 80% renewable energy future study. And somebody within DOE or one of the labs or something like that put together a study that said we can't hit 80% renewables, it is impossible, um, or it's prohibitively expensive. And then they leaked that study and it had the DOE logo on it and said preliminary draft not suitable for publication um you know would you have viewed that as appropriate is that person to do that and to deliver that or is there something different about this because you think that the political motivations behind this memo that secretary perry released are somehow you know less less reasonable less unbiased than you would have seen in that case oh i would support the same level of disclosure i'm i don't care who it is what type of assumptions they're bringing to the report and what administration it is. Like, I want more information on the different steps. So if, for example, you have lab researchers at NREL who are concluding that you can get 80% renewables with very little reliability problems, and then, you know, someone on the the political side ups that number or reduces that number, it's our right to know. I mean, we should know why they're changing that number. Um, but that's so, that's a different thing. Like my scenario is positing the opposite. I'm saying, what if somebody, what if some, you know, somebody within NREL or a team within NREL uh, came to the opposite conclusion and said, we can't get nearly to eighty percent. You know, there's a twenty percent is the limit. Um, well, and I, I, and I guess want the, to know the, that, yeah, because that's credible information. I mean, someone who who has the expertise and the understanding of the industry to be able to make that conclusion, we all need to know that. I mean, I don't want to just artificially pick 80% renewables because it sounds good. So if the administration, the Obama administration, changes that to make it look better for renewables, that's political favor. That's a political favor. I think that's wrong, and I think the world should know about it. So, you know, you're you're worried that... Um politics will distort what what would have otherwise been relatively unbiased credible findings of this study and so it was okay to leak a draft version under out of concern for political influence basically yes and remember that most of these political appointees are coming from industry 
they often come from the businesses who are represented or have something to gain or lose from these studies. They come from lobbying organizations. They come from interest groups. I mean, like these are people who have a direct interest in shaping conclusions, whereas someone who's working at NREL and has been working there for 20 years is the objective person in the room. So I, I do worry about any sort of political shaping. And regardless of whether it looks good or bad for renewables, I think we, sh- we all have the right to know how they're being shaped. What about at least waiting for the final version to get re- I mean, I don't know what happened inside of DOE here and how this all went down. Um, and there's stuff in here that does really bug me. Like there's another place uh, where they, they take a chart from the Quadrennial Energy Review, which was a fantastic, gigantic report um, published during the Obama administration that has a sort of, it's just a, it's a really simple look at like the ways in which system reliability has to be planned for at different timescales, ranging from like the millisecond to decades and more. And the last one on there is on a, you know, decades and more timescale, we have to be planning for carbon goals. And then there's a little note in there that says, note, BCS to remove planning for carbon goals. BCS is a DOE contractor that presumably was working on this study. So the way that I read that is that in this administration, you can't put carbon or planning for carbon goals in any sort of publication. So that has to get removed. That's a, that to me seems like clearly there was political influence on the way. So I, you know, I hear what you're saying. Um, I just think, you know, you can also make the case that it's the, the structure of the DOE is that if the secretary, who is always going to be a political appointee, wants to release a study, however it was produced, this, they should be able to release that study. And then it's the responsibility of everybody else in the country who has data and analysis available to them to support or you know make arguments against that case. And indeed, there's already been a bunch of that Um which was some of which was cited in this draft study, like the analysis group piece, the LBNL piece, the um, Columbia University piece, like a bunch of the things we've talked about historically on this podcast were actually cited in this note. So I don't know. I, you know, I, like I said, originally, I really love this report, but I'm a little mixed about whether it was the right thing to do to leak it in its current form. Well, whether you think it's right or wrong, the study's out there now, and and we have a benchmark to use when evaluating the final study. So more to come, folks. Let's take a momentary break to talk about our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Thanks so much to Wonder for supporting the show. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large-scale solar projects in 2017. Those projects will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. Coal is on its way out, solar is on its way in, and it's time for you to capitalize. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more, create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash GTM. That is wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. Let's turn now to a conversation that Shale and I recorded at the Grid Edge World Forum a few weeks ago with Hervé Toati, the managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute. 
Longtime listeners will remember our onstage conversation with Hervé at RMI's Business Renewable Center event in Detroit last fall, which brought together the biggest companies in the world to talk about purchasing trends, why they're buying more renewables, and more importantly, how they're doing it. So the world is pretty different now under President Trump. But that has only emboldened these companies with record numbers now committing to 100% renewables. We use that as the jumping off point for our conversation with Hervé, and we try to understand how large companies could actually source 100% of their electrons from renewables, not just RECs, the credits, but their electrons. We also talk about expanding those efforts deeper into supply chains, like what Walmart is trying to do with GHG emissions. It's a good revisit of the topic. So here's our conversation from the Grid Edge World Forum with Hervé Toati of RMI. Now, of course, a commitment and a pledge is one thing. Um, what matters at the end is that transactions happen and actual procurement of renewable energy happen. That will take a bit of time, obviously, for two reasons. Many of the players do not have the skills and capabilities and will need education and training. And the second reason is that some of these players are not as large as the pioneers in the field and will need to have access to products that are at a higher level of granularity uh, for them to be able to do something meaningful at their scale. So the two, the, com- the combination of the two, additional training and education and products that are better adapted to a larger audience are the next two obstacles to overcome. Let's talk a little bit about that second obstacle that you mentioned, the size issue. The first wave of procurement from corporates for renewables were big deals, 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts, multi-hundred megawatts. Uh, but like you said, there's probably a, an even bigger total addressable market if you could offer a solution to a customer that only needs five megawatts and not 500. So I know RMI is doing some work on this. How do you see that progressing? What is the solution in order to get smaller corporates on board in the way that the big corporates already are? There are a number of emerging uh, offering offerings uh, around the general theme of aggregation. And why is aggregation needed? Simply because it's more economical to build wind and even solar today at the scale of one or 200 megawatts, it's just cheaper to do it at that large scale for many reasons. And of course, this is too big for uh, the type of customers we are talking about. So what we need to do is to find a structure and a, a mechanism, an approach that aggregates a significant number of buyers of five megawatts uh, load uh, so that they can get access to the economics of large farms. So a number of brokers are uh, starting to introduce such products in the market. This is very nascent, but this is the direction in which we need to go. Shale and I uh, you know, talked to you on stage at the recent BRC event, and it seemed like people were just starting to talk about those aggregated deals. Um, have there been more executed in the months since then? Is this something that people are just talking about, or is it a real, is, is the aggregation of smaller players in order to buy into bigger projects a real thing that we're seeing? As I said, starting, and those deals take a significant amount of time. Uh, and of course, when you buy, when you uh, put together 10 buyers, it's uh, going likely to take more time than if you have only one buyer. Yeah. And the industry is learning how to run this process efficiently. Yeah. We are, uh, we know actually at least one such uh, consortium of buyers uh, here in California getting together. It's roughly the, the number is roughly around 10 buyers. 
Uh, and we have organized uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, two series of uh, webinars uh, where uh, service providers propose their aggregation uh, products. So as I said, this is coming. Last year, we didn't have that many products on the market. Now we start to see at least a dozen. Uh, so uh, I believe in the next six to 12 months, we are going to see uh, material transactions emerging. But it will take that amount of time. Stepping back to the overall sort of trends in corporate procurement, there was this big boom in 2015 ahead of what was expected to be investment tax credit and production tax credit expiration that has then resulted in this sort of hangover effect. The market in terms of new transactions was down a lot last year. And this year, I think thus far, looks like it'll be bigger than last year, but perhaps not back to the level of 2015. How do you see the trend line over the next couple of years? Is this a booming market or is it just a slow, steady growth kind of thing? Well, it's, of course, um, um, a matter of perspective, what you call a slow or fast. Um, what we see, if I remove uh, 2015, has been indeed uh, an exceptional year for the reason you indicated. You see a market that is still growing at 20 30% a year, which is quite significant. Yeah. So this year, to give you an order of magnitude, we are end of June, we have reached 1.2 gigawatts. Uh, last year, we were at 1.6. So it's not unreasonable to expect that we will reach 2 gigawatts uh, this year. So it's a 20, 30% increase compared to the year before. So it's not an, expo ex an exponential growth. Um, it's not doubling, let's say, every year. But 20, 30% growth is quite significant. And how about the proportion of sort of repeat buyers versus new buyers year over year? Is it that you're seeing, you know, the Googles of the world signing more and more PPAs? Or is it that there are a whole bunch of new entrants who are making up that 1.2 that we've already seen so far this year? We look at that and um, roughly um, you can see that uh, more than half of the companies that have signed deals since January last year, so over the past 18 months, are new to the market. So there is a significant renewal uh, of the type of companies signing in. You know, as more companies start to set these 100% renewable energy targets, uh, many of the leaders at least recognize that they need to do more than just procure recs. And to get to that level, um, it's very, very difficult to, you know, exactly match supply with their own demand. And I wonder what companies are doing to um, figure out ways to deploy renewables locationally so that they're actually consuming the electricity and not just buying the environmental value of that electricity through RECs. And how difficult that becomes as you start getting up to these 50% and beyond levels. In reality, um, it's difficult to make sure that the electricity produced is the electricity you consume. Uh, it's a bit like water in a lake. And you have a house downstream and there are a number of streams bringing water in the lake. It's difficult to allocate a particular molecule of water from one stream to your house. Yeah, electricity works the same way. So I think behind your question is also the uh, question of whether we consume electricity as corporate buyers at the same time as the electricity is actually produced by the wind or solar farm with which we have contracted. That, that uh, is a very uh, ambitious objective. Today, um, I don't know any company that can claim to have done that perfectly. 
you may be aware that Google announced last December um, what they call their 24-7 objective, which is exactly to match supply and demand by the hour. It is an aspirational target that they have put forward. They are not there today. And I don't think any other company is there today. How close are they? I mean, how aspirational is that? I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. I mean, is this something that's easily doable or is it an extremely difficult to achieve target? Um, Technically, um, anything can be achieved. It's a matter of uh, economics at the end. You can put massive battery systems close to a wind farm and make sure that uh, the wind farm and the battery system only inject in the grid at the time you actually need the electricity. So technically, it's feasible. But today, it's very expensive to do so. Yeah. So the question is, how can we be smart about how we uh, provide uh, this solution to the market? Yeah. That is sort of gets at a couple of questions that I have. The first one was specifically related to that. I think there's been uh, an assumption that at some point corporates might start to request firm renewables. They might ask for solar plus storage or wind plus storage. Whether it perfectly aligns with their load or not, they might say, look, from a system perspective, the impact that I want to have is I want to ensure that a you know, a dispatchable wind project gets developed. So my first question is, have you seen any of that yet? Are corporates actually at the point where they're starting to demand or request firm renewables, or is that just off in the future? Um, What I've seen is some corporates requesting from renewable developers a a predefined production profile, which of course doesn't exactly match when the wind or the solar uh, production uh, is there on the grid. And the difference is managed uh, by the project developers by trading um, blocks uh, on the wholesale market, which in reality means that some of the electricity will be born energy. So it's more a way to limit the risk, the volumetric risk for the buyers, than it is a way to perfectly um, balance their supply, uh, their demand with their supply of green energy. Now, if you want to do that, uh, today, I've not seen people going in that direction because it's indeed um, very expensive to do. Yeah. I just wonder whether the long-term trend here, you know, I think if you draw this forward, right, at some point you have a lot of corporates that have 100% renewable energy just in pure volumetric terms. So they are proc- they are consuming the same amount of electricity that they have procured from a solar or wind project, but they, those don't align um, from a time perspective. And... So the system still needs backstop generation, all those kinds of things. So they may at some point, you know, if if corporates get a little bit more nuanced about it and if the costs come down, then it starts to make sense. The other thing that you imagine happening at at some point, because this is it's a similar story to the question about 100 percent renewables on the grid. This is just a microcosm of that is shouldn't the customer be thinking about their load profile? And will the customer actually, in the, in the sort of process of procuring 100% renewable energy, try to align their load a little bit closer with the energy that they're procuring? And I wonder whether you see big barriers to that just in terms of, is it a different part of this company? You know, the part of GM that procures from a solar or wind project, is it a totally different part from the part that manages their energy consumption at their facilities? Um, In many organizations, uh, it is indeed not in the same part of the company. Um, And uh, if you want to have access to enough load flexibility, uh, at least when you look at industrial operations, 
you are talking about um, having uh, good discussions with process engineers. And that's not necessarily straightforward for um, the part of the company that is more related to sustainability, which is typically leading the procurement of off-site renewable energy. Um, if you look at companies like Enernoc, in the past we are looking at demand response, um, and other companies of that nature, if you want to go deep in uh, the ability to flex the load, you indeed need to understand the particular process you are dealing with. So it's a very different types of skills. Yeah. So do you think we never get to a point where the corporates who say 100% renewables, what they mean is, if not the specific electrons from those projects feeding into their facility, at least the alignment from a time variant perspective of what they're procuring with what they're consuming? And and should we care if that's what they're achieving? Right. D- does it matter how we define it as long as they're matching it? I think the reason that Google wa- wanted to move in that direction um, is that indeed they don't want to be accused of um, using uh, fossil fuel uh, because of this unbalance uh, problem, as you mentioned earlier. Now, if you push their approach to the extreme and if every consumer is able to balance perfectly its load with uh, solar and wind production profiles, you probably completely over-engineer the, pro- the, the solution. Yeah. Because you don't need all individuals to actually do that. There's a lot of unbalances that simply net out because some are short, others are long compared to the supply. And the only thing you need to do is to make sure that the difference, the net effect, the net unbalance between demand and supply is taken care of without using fossil fuels, which is more something that a grid operator or specialized energy players should worry about, in my view, that individual consumers. I'm curious about the changing resource mix and if it is indeed changing. You know, as we've seen, the vast majority of corporate procurements have been in wind, and we see a slight uptick in solar. So as we look at the numbers this year, has the, the mix of wind and solar changed at all? I don't have these numbers uh, for this year. Uh, my anticipation is that indeed we see a lot more solar. Um, what also I see is a very interesting development in the Southeast. The Southeast, as you know, is a regulated market in the US and uh, has not so far seen a lot of development in renewable energy. But solar is getting so cheap in the Southeast that utilities start to get interested. Um, I heard recently in a conference uh, a representative of uh, Georgia um, Power uh, was mentioning an objective of putting three gigawatts of solar in Georgia by 2021, which is quite significant. Yeah, and actually that's, I mean, Georgia Power is part of Dominion. Dominion's latest IRP has five gigawatts of solar in it through 2042. It's by far the largest resource in their IRP. They have almost nothing else in there. And that's a change just from their 2016 IRP. So over the last 12 months, all of a sudden solar became so cheap that it's just swamping everything else in their models. One other thing I was wondering about, so Walmart which has you know, been an early rooftop solar customer and actually been pretty aggressive on greenhouse gas reduction in general, they have this, this thing called Project Gigaton, which is basically their mechanism to lean on their supply chain uh, to 
force their supply chain to do more to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I wonder whether you think that's going to be a trend in, in renewables procurement as well, where companies like, say, Google will get to 100%, and then the next step for them is to force their supply chain to do the same. Absolutely. One of our recent uh, members of the Business Renewable Center is uh, a well-known uh, European chemical company. And the reason they join us is because one of their key customers, whose name, unfortunately, I cannot share with you, uh, asks them to either uh, use green electricity to uh, run their factories for the products they are buying or um, consider to sell the same product to somebody else. So it was pretty straightforward uh, in terms of uh, a conversation. And uh, I anticipate that more of that is going to happen. And the large buyers that have experience, as I'm sure can play a role actually as aggregators, because for example, Walmart has all capabilities to play that role and could assist whoever in their supply chain would like to procure renewable energy, perhaps at a smaller uh, load or size uh, than they do usually, could assist them to uh, put together their demand and get access to good economics which actually will serve Walmart indirectly as well. Yeah. That, that's an interesting idea. So what you're saying is so a Walmart could go to a bunch of its suppliers and say, you know, we're offering through through one of these service providers, we're offering five megawatt blocks. Uh, don't It's not do you want to sign up, it's you will sign up if you want to continue to sell to us. And then they aggregate a bunch of those. And I wonder, could Walmart then act as the credit backstop? Because Walmart's highly creditworthy and all their suppliers are not necessarily to lower the financing cost on the system. I think that's a question to ask to Walmart. Um, but something along those lines is, uh, I believe, a natural development for those large corporations that would like to go uh, beyond their own electricity footprint. Yeah, but you you can see, you can imagine some pretty serious knock-on effects as these companies get more sophisticated in their procurement. The final development that I think is important to talk about is the concept that you call Rexit, um, the renewable energy exits. These corporate players that decide to pay a fee to disconnect, to stop buying electricity from the servicing utility and to go out into wholesale markets and procure on their own because they can get cheaper renewables on their own. This is something that we've seen in Nevada with a lot of the um, you know, major casinos deciding to uh, end their relationship with Envy Energy. And of course, Nevada is sort of a, a unique state in that these companies are allowed to do that. But do you see other corporate players around the country? What, first of all, what states can this happen in? And are other corporate players going to follow this lead? Is this something that we're going to see more of? We see uh, a similar development. We've seen a similar development uh, earlier this year uh, where uh, Microsoft announced that in Washington State they would do some, something similar. Actually, they coordinated with uh, Puget Sound Energy, their um, local uh, utility. Um, this has not been approved by the regulator, but I assume that if a, if a large customer like Microsoft and the utility supplying them agree, the regulator is likely to say yes. Uh, but of course, we have no guarantee. So in which of the states, it's a bit difficult to say. Uh, we need to analyze the law state by state. And honestly, we have not done uh, that work. 
And frankly, before MGM did it, I think nobody knew that there was such a possibility in the law of uh, Nevada. So it's a lot of detailed legal uh, work that needs to be done. Yeah, so I see the examples of, of Nevada and MG, MGM and Switch and Microsoft and Washington as being sort of the extreme end of one spectrum where I imagine this process, if you're a corporate somewhere in the country and you want to procure renewables, you probably don't go straight to defection from your utility. You start with, okay, can I sign an offsite? PPA, maybe through BRC or through an, a partner. If that doesn't work for you, doesn't provide the right solutions, you do go to your utility and then you say, let's negotiate a green tariff program, which I think is in something like nine states now and has been a, an effective solution for some customers. And if that doesn't provide the right solution to you, then you you know explore the nuclear option, which is what these customers are doing. So I think the, the hope is Rexit doesn't become a widespread phenomenon. And maybe just the fact that you've seen it in a few cases will open up the eyes of a bunch of other utilities to saying, okay, I need to facilitate this. I need to not be an impediment to it. No, I agree. Um, there's also an important consideration in regulated uh, territories uh, is a f- question of whether you can come with a new load or not. Uh, electricity demand has not really grown across the U.S. So if you are able to come with a new load, new factory, new data center, you can sign reasonable deals with utilities. Yeah. If you do not, and it's about switching from bond power to green power, the regulatory mechanism is usually pretty straightforward. It's about comparing the cost of wind and solar with the cost of avoided fuel the fuel you don't need to consume because actually you use green energy instead. And this is a delta that you need to pay on top of your existing tariff that will make your green tariff. Now, what's getting interesting is that that delta is in some situation getting really close to zero. So imagine a situation where actually it's zero or less, meaning that you get green electricity for less money than brown power. What's going to happen to demand? And just to be clear about that and why that's such a big deal, you're talking about the point at which renewable energy becomes cheaper than just the avoided cost of fuel, so not incorporating the full capital cost, right? It's one thing for us to hit grid parity with a you know new solar project versus a new gas project. It's another thing to have solar be cheaper than just continuing to operate the new gas project. Yes, in usually when you look at the tariff calculation, there's a little bit of a capacity component. So it's fuel plus a little bit of capacity, but indeed it's mostly fuel. Yeah. And you are absolutely right. I call that a flood in the making. Hervé Toati, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That's going to do it, folks. If you like this podcast, make sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes. That's where most of our listeners find the show. So it helps us quite a bit. In our next episode, we're going to be talking with Christopher Clack, who was the lead author of that PNAS rebuttal of Mark Jacobson's 100% renewable energy study on the grid. We talked to Jacobson, of course, in our um, last episode. Re-listen to that, and then we'll have Clack, who will come on to dissect some of what Jacobson wrote and said. That'll be a fun one, Shale. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Great. Well, I will catch you next week. I will catch all of you next week. Thanks for listening to The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media.